Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. In her 30-year career, award-winning stage, film, television actress, and playwright Sharon Washington has amassed a list of credits a mile long. A few highlights. On Broadway, she played the lady in the critically acclaimed The Scottsboro Boys. Off-Broadway, Wild with Happy at the Public Theater, for which she received a Lucille Lortel nomination and an Audelco Award. Sharon's been part of the New York Shakespeare Festival, cast as Lady Anne to Denzel Washington's Richard III. Her regional credits have taken her to Hartford Stage, Yale Rep, Seattle Rep, the Guthrie Theater. On the big screen, Sharon's had roles in The Bourne Legacy, Malcolm X, Die Hard with a Vengeance. TV credits include Blue Bloods, Law and Order, Royal Pains. Then there are the web series, The Looming Tower, and Hustling, for which she won the 2015 Indie Series Award as well. Sharon has appeared in numerous TV commercials and is an accomplished audiobook and documentary film narrator. But last and so not least is her work as a playwright. Feeding the Dragon marks her debut as a writer-performer. This one-woman show is set in the St. Agnes branch of the New York City Public Library. Why? Because that's where Sharon grew up. Oh, and one more thing. Sharon is a graduate of Dartmouth College and Yale School of Drama. So let's meet and get to know this accomplished, talented stage and screen actress, Sharon. Welcome, and thanks so much for joining me today. Wow, thank you for inviting me. This is so exciting. Does it give you, like, pause when somebody rattles off, and I didn't even scratch the surface of your professional history. It gives me pause because I can't believe I've been doing it for as long as I've been doing it. And it also gives me pause to say, wow, you know, I've had a really good run. Mm -hmm. Like if I didn't do this, and I'm not saying I want to not do this anymore, but if right. I didn't do this anymore tomorrow, I've had a really good run. Right. You could sit back and just totally. look at what you've done in your career. And I've worked with such great people who are now friends and colleagues mm -hmm. to this day. I mean, it's so, yeah, I enjoy, I was kind of sitting here smiling, thinking, oh, that's that's not too bad, not too shabby. So where did that begin for you? Did you know you were going to do this? I don't think I knew I was going to do this professionally from the beginning. Mm -hmm. I was always a little bit of a show-off, a mm -hmm. little bit of a ham. I'm an only child of older parents. So I was around a lot of adults growing up. And I went to a Pentecostal church. So I think a lot of what I saw, I was a great mimic. So after church on Sundays, we'd have Sunday dinners. And uh, they'd say, oh, Sharon, do sister so-and-so. <laughs> you know how she did that thing. Uh -huh. And so I was kind of the entertainment. Uh -huh. my, my mother would trot me out very proudly. And I had absolutely no shame. And she said, oh, you can do She does this great imitation of so-and-so. And so that's how it kind of all started. And again, with church, there were Easter pageants and Christmas pageants and programs. And I always, and they would, I remember, they would give out your texts on a little piece of paper. And I always wanted the biggest piece of paper. Like they give you a, a line of scripture or a paragraph or something, and they dole out the sort of parts. And you were just completely comfortable. I Absolutely. Church notwithstanding. Mm -hmm. But what about school? What about elementary school? I'm trying to remember. I was just always kind of a show off. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was... Well, there's another word for that. That could be self-assured, <laughs> self-confident, right? I, I think so. You know, in, in researching the 
play and mm. going back. My mother saved everything. So she saved a lot of my elementary school reports. And they were handwritten comments at the time, along with a grade. Right. But there was like, Sharon's a wonderful, outgoing student. But sometimes she has to learn that there are other <laughs> there are other students who know the answer. Mm -hmm. So I was always kind of the one who wanted to me, 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 me. So I think that's when I say show off. That's kind of what I, I know mean. what you're saying. Yes. Um, so I think it started in school and I got a lot of positive feedback for it and I was popular. So I think one reinforced the other. So as you got older, did you try out for the school plays? All the time. And you made it? All the time. So why did you go to Dartmouth? Well, because I am a first generation, well, first in my family to go to college. All right. Um, my father didn't graduate high school, and my mother graduated high school but didn't go any further than that. And I was certainly the first in my family to go to an Ivy League school. So I couldn't do all of that, have all this promise. Education was very big in my family. You know, you're going to get an education and you'll get a better job and you'll have a better life. So I didn't want to go to Dartmouth and then end up an actor. So I went to Dartmouth because I thought I'll get this great education. I registered for the foreign service exam. I was going to go to a French-speaking African country and be like a diplomat. Wow. So the performing, which I use in quotes, mm -hmm. growing up was kind of an avocation, Absolutely. a hobby. Absolutely. And you, had, and you really enjoyed it and you had fun, but you knew that you were going to just have to have your feet more firmly planted Absolutely. on the ground. I was the one in my family to have all of the advantages. My parents worked really hard. And like I said, they instilled education that's going to take us to the next level. You'll mm -hmm. be more secure. You shouldn't be doing, you know, I, I was very proud of my parents, but they wanted something better for me. So sure. to do that. Well, that's not unusual. Right. We all of want course. that or of we're course. all given that. Absolutely. Yeah. So it was really drummed into me. And I thought, well, I'm the one that's all their hopes pinned on. Mm -hmm. So I need to go make something of myself. And I fully intended to be the best diplomat I could possibly so be. So what happened? <laughs> I took advantage of the Dartmouth Alumni Network. First of all, can I just ask, what was that like going to school in New Hampshire for a New Yorker? I would have to imagine there weren't too many women of color in your no, class. No, there were very few of us. Mm -hmm. We are very bonded to this day because of that. There were very few women. When I was at Dartmouth, It was the ratio was four to one. So we were mm. just, the first class of women, I believe, was 73. And you? Uh, I was class of 81. All right. So that's so not so far removed. In the first wave. So those first ladies, I give my props to. The atmosphere was, how shall I say it? It was really difficult, but there were so many things about it that were so wonderful. And what I was exposed to and the friendships that I have until today. Now, of course, the winters, I cried during several winters at Dartmouth <laughs> right. because I couldn't believe they were actually making us go to class when you couldn't see above your head because yeah. of the snowbanks. Right. And it was also the time the Dartmouth Review started when I was there, which is their version of the National Review. There were a lot of very harsh conservative voices um, that were finding their own voice mm -hmm. at the time that mm -hmm. were classmates of mine that are still in very big in the conservative movement. And so there were clashes with the Black Student Union and the Native American Union. And, you know, there was a lot of that. But it also made me very strong and very opinionated. Right. And able to argue intelligently other than just being angry, because you can just be angry. And what does that get you? Exactly. Mm -hmm. So it was, yes, it was difficult, but it was also some of the best years of my life. And a good background for you. So did you go right away to the Yale School of Drama? No, I took advantage, again, of this great Dartmouth alumni network. And I thought, well, if I'm going to do something, maybe for the summer, I'll go see a Dartmouth alum who works in the theater. 
And I called up, they encourage you to call up alums and, and have a chat. And I called up Barry Grove, who is the, I believe his title is either executive director or producing director of Manhattan Theater Club. And he's oh, been there for years. All right, with, that's big. With Lynn Meadow. Barry was class of 73. And I called him up and I said, can we talk about the theater and talk about, you know, what it's like to work off Broadway? And he said, absolutely. We had this great chat. And he said, well, I don't have a job for you. There's a job opening in the box office. Maybe you want to do that for the summer and just see how an off-Broadway theater works. And I was like, yes, I'll do that. And I never left. This is the summer after graduation? This is the summer after graduation. So you got completely hooked. I got completely hooked. I went and worked in the box office met some terrific people, saw everything for free. This was mm-hmm. when Manhattan Theater Club was over on East 71st Street. But they were still producing things like Eight Misbehaven and um, I'm trying to think of who, a lot of John Guare and all mm. of these fabulous actors and playwrights coming through. And I was like, wow. Okay, but I still don't want to act because I still want to have a steady paycheck. So I worked in the box office for a year and then Barry's assistant left. So I became assistant to the managing director for two years. So I really did learn about contracts and how all of this works. But all I kept thinking was, yeah, but I want to do, every time I'd see a really good performance or something that would blow me away, I'd think, yeah, but I want to do that. And it just so happened somebody was working there who went to the drama school, who had just graduated um, from the drama school. And all these other Yaleys were coming through because of Lynn's connection. And you applied. I applied. That must have been a tsunami for you. It was amazing. I had, I think, you know, the expression ignorance is bliss mm. was huge for me because I knew about Yale, but I didn't really know what you were getting into, what I was getting into, <laughs> that they only took 16 or 17 people, mm-hmm. that it was this. So I kind of was like, oh, yeah, these people, all these people. Ah, I know what the seminal moment was. I went and saw a production of Ma Rainey's Black Bottom on Broadway Yep, that had just come out of Yale. I saw... Charles Rock Dutton, mm-hmm. who blew me away. It was one of those performances that I I still can remember mm-hmm. moments mm-hmm. from. And there were all these, there was a woman named Sharon Alita Mitchell who was out of Yale and Scott Richards and Lloyd Richards directed. And I remember sitting in the theater going, that's what I want to do. And where are all these people from? And the common denominator was Yale. They were coming out of either the drama school or working at the rep. And I thought, I want to do that. Again, ignorance is bliss, not knowing. Well, but that's the joy of being of youth on some <laughs> yes, level. Yes, yes. Why yes. not go for it as opposed to, oh, I'm not worthy. I totally. can't do this. So that really whet your appetite. That was it. And that's where you clearly honed a craft. Absolutely. The craft. Yes. Yes. And then you what? I got out in New York. 1988. And fortunately, uh, New York is home. So it wasn't like I was coming back to a strange place. I always say that because I think that was an advantage. Like people who are coming out of drama school or or heading somewhere where they don't know. It's like I was coming home. That's right. I kind of had an advantage that I kind you of knew the, the lay, lay of the, the land. land. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. So Ooh, great minds here, yes. Think alike. <laughs> so I came home and, you know, I didn't get a job right out of school. I actually got one job uh, at Manhattan Theater Club on stage. That uh, must have been a sweet it uh, was experience really, it was based really on where sweet. you came it, from. It was mm-hmm. really great. And, and everyone was so proud of me. And they st- still are to this day big fans. I've done a couple of shows there now. And so when I go back, it's like, oh, yes, I remember, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, and that's where my association with the public started. That was one of my first big shows. So it wasn't necessarily stereotypical for you where, you know, you were you had a waitress. I did kind of hit the ground running. I did book 
very early, very quickly. Mm -hmm. And then I had long periods of nothing. So it was sort of the opposite. Mm -hmm. It was where I thought, oh, this is going to be, I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to pay my dues, and and the next stop is TV show, film, whatever. Right. No, not so much. Um, So I think I hit, yeah, I hit a dry spell. And that was hard because you don't know, like, is it me? What am I doing? Is there something I should be doing Did you have an agent? I did. I got an agent right out of school, an agent um, that I stayed with for years. She wanted me to go to L.A. I wasn't sure. You know, I was trained in the theater. Yeah. (laughs) So I wasn't going to L.A. Right, right, right. You know, um, and, you know, that, you know, in hindsight, maybe I should have gone when I was younger to L.A. And um, the business was very different then. Mm. I mean, I this we're talking I graduated in 1988. So the business was uh, there was pilot season, which was sort of a frenzy and people flying you out and back and forth. Now there's so much being produced on both coasts. Right. It's not quite the same. It's still a frenzy, but there's not a pilot season per se because there's not the big three anymore. Networks. You know, yes, yes. That you have, there's so many options exactly. now. Yeah, that exactly. makes a huge difference. So it was, it's very different. And I will say that it's gotten better as far as diversity and as far as um, more roles for people of color. Um, yeah, well, see, I don't want to praise that because that just gets me so angry. You well, know, oh, we've got, oh, there's so many more roles for women and people have called, oh, isn't that fabulous? What took you so long? Well, damn it. But it's true and it's taken a long time yeah. for it to be close, not even close to being. I, re- I remember first coming out of drama school and I remember a friend of mine who's still a dear friend, a beautiful, blonde haired, blue eyed, she's just a gorgeous woman and a wonderful and a wonderful actress and she would have during pilot season I remember she had canvas totes full of scripts Mm -hmm. and I had two oh okay okay Mm -hmm. that's yep yep what Mm -hmm. it was like so in that sense it's gotten better but your career and this is a positive is very eclectic that's live theater big screen small screen you know voiceover work thank you it's 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 helpful because you don't have all your eggs in one basket and you it also i think makes me more of a uh i can do more things sure i have well there was a versatility yes is is that a good word to use i mean it's talent obviously but there's that flexibility that you can kind of sashay into roles, you know? I I wonder what that must have been like for you in terms of Shakespeare. Did you feel like you were the lone woman of color? Sometimes. Mm. Sometimes. But it's interesting because one of the reasons I went to Yale is I've always thought, you know, I'm a pretty good actor. I'm kind of good at this. Yeah. What I wanted from Yale was the training to do Shakespeare and Shaw and Ibsen so Mm -hmm. that when I went into these rooms as the sole, sometimes, person of color, you weren't going to deny me the job and because they I gonna, didn't have the tools. Right, and they weren't going to look at your skin exactly. color. They were looking at you as a talented actress. And when I first came out, that was exact. God bless them. There were several directors when I first came out, and it was still sort of, you know, I would be the sole person of color in a Shaw, and the director would say to a press person, you know, well, there's such a bold piece of colorblind casting. And the director would say... No, she was the best person for the role. Mm -hmm. I mean, just Mm -hmm. hands, like, without Mm -hmm. skipping a beat. So kind of just shut it down. Gotcha. Gotcha. So that was very gratifying to me early on, that I knew and was comfortable in those rooms. I can scan a, you know, monologue, a Shakespeare monologue, just as good as anybody else. (laughs) So, um, and that was one of my goals. So I was very happy to do that. So here you have all these credits to your name. And now let's move to playwright. Mm. It was a tease that I said about St. Agnes 
the branch of the New York Public Library where you lived for several years, Mm -hmm. not many years. Mm -hmm. Why? How come? Well, because back in the day, there were custodial apartments in the libraries, in many Carnegie libraries. Um, But in New York, there were several. There were over 30. And it was because all of these buildings were heated by coal furnaces. So it was the job of the custodian to keep that furnace going Mm -hmm. Mm 24-7. So in order to do that, you had to stoke the furnace and make sure that it was banked and cleaned. And and that was a 24-7 job. So they provided custodial apartments within the libraries, like upstairs, Mm -hmm. usually on the top floor. And they were big apartments. They were sometimes, ours was a three-bedroom. Most of them were three-bedrooms or two-bedrooms. And uh, the families moved in. And that's what was... My Is dad's that job. where you were born? I was actually born in Queens. I was born at Queens General Hospital. I stayed with my aunt. Mm-hmm. Um, we lived with we lived all over. We never had really an apartment. My parents never really had a place of their own. They lived with relatives, mm-hmm. and so I was born actually in Queens. And my my aunt Millie owned an apart a, a house there. Actually, okay, and we stayed there. And then at some point, very very early on in when your I was youth, probably around three, was the St. Agnes Branch your first library that was experience? The first library. Okay. Okay, so this sort of begs the question, obviously, what was that like Mm. to be an only child and to live where nobody else lived, where people came all the time, but then they left and you didn't? It was pretty spectacular. It was pretty special. When I was younger, to be able to go down into the library by myself after hours and roam around and go behind the stacks and into the librarian's workroom and and pull books out and read them and books that were appropriate, some that were, I'm sure were inappropriate, medical books that had p- big pictures <laughs> and all kinds of things <laughs> that I'm sure I shouldn't have been reading. But it was... It was, it was my world. It was like, especially for an only child with a lot of imagination, it was my babysitter. Yeah, Both was... my parents worked. Wow. Um, but they always knew where I was because sure. I was inside with the door locked. Mm-hmm. So they, you know, when my mother yelled down, time to come upstairs, it might have taken me a minute, but she knew I was somewhere in that library. I was safe. Mm-hmm. Did you invite friends over? I did. And so they played with you in, in the, the li- library. Did you have free reign in that library? Yep. And that was okay with the powers that be separate from your parents? I hope so. I mean, they're if not, they're hearing about it now or they've <laughs> passed on. But mm-hmm. I mean, I think, yes, as long as my father was very uh, conscientious about his work. Mm-hmm. So everything was kept beautifully. The brass shined, the marble shined, everything was. So as long as that job was his job as custodian was done and yes. done well, mm-hmm. they didn't have any complaints. I'm trying to wrap my head around <laughs> several parts to this. A, being an only child. Mm -hmm. I mean, what you didn't say about yourself, so that I'll say, is resourceful. Mm. You know, whether you had parents who participated in your life or not, there was something that you had, whatever you want to call it, a je ne sais quoi, that you knew what to do with you. Mm. Mm. Would would you agree with me on that? Yeah, I'd agree with you on that. Yeah. Obviously, somebody may say, well, for heaven's sakes, if you're in a library, you're going to go and look at books. But that doesn't necessarily mean a given that that was enough to entertain you. Mm -hmm. There were so many people who came through. I mean, my parents had friends that if you came over to our house for dinner after church or something, you'd come through the library and upstairs. So it was very normal. So it was for us, it was normal. Yes, right, 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 right. 
And the playing afterwards was more me. I mean, it was my father's job. So, you know, when he was off, he wasn't down in the library. But I, it's interesting. People would ask, because I'm, I'm an avid reader, mm-hmm. and people would say, people have always asked me, would you, which came first? It's like the chicken or the egg. Would you have been a reader if you hadn't grown up in a library or because you grew up in a library, did you become such an avid reader? I actually can't answer that. And I don't what know. difference does it make? <laughs> well, I mean, this is true. I mean, it does. It really doesn't make a difference. But I had access to everything. Mm. So maybe that did increase the... It certainly, I think, increased my curiosity. But you know what I think is a more interesting question? Why aren't you a writer? Mm. That is... Yeah. Yeah. I thought of that somehow. Oh, that's so interesting. You know, with the accessibility, with, with, with having all these books at your fingertips and all different kinds of books. Well, it's interesting. It's, you know, that's the first time someone has actually brought that up. And I think that's a really interesting point. In thinking about it, it's because when I read, I saw these characters and then I acted the characters out. It was just me. So I'd have to be both people. So I think to bring the story to life for myself... I'd speak it. I'd always speak it out loud. Oh, that's oh, that is really interesting, and that makes perfect that's, sense. That's a great answer. You know. Yeah, I think that's you just made me think about that. I think that's what it was. Is mm-hmm. that if I was reading a story, I'd be all the characters in the story. Just and it didn't matter to you that you didn't have an audience. No, no, not at all. So it, this also speaks volumes to the fact that even though you had friends over and 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 you had cousins or whatever, you're very comfortable in your own skin. Very much so. Sometimes too much. I'm, I'm, I'm a really good loner. So you decide one day that you're going to chronicle your experience, which eventually morphs into Feeding the Dragon. So don't let me talk mm-hmm. about that. You talk about that. Why did you write this one-woman show? So I'm going to try to make this brief because it, it happened over so many years. I've been wanting to tell the story for probably over 30 years. I can tie it back to sitting during a tech rehearsal for a play at the Shakespeare Festival. We were doing Cymbeline, Joanne Acolytus's Cymbeline, as a matter of fact. And there were a bunch of us sitting around. And, you know, when you're on a break from a long day of tech, you start telling stories. Mm-hmm. And where are you from? And, oh, this, that, and the other. And we, we were sharing stories. And I told my story. And Wendell Pierce, I'm going to name drop because I just saw him the other day. And I told him I was name dropping him all over the place said to me, you have to write that story down. You have to tell that story. What an amazing, you know, forget Eloise in the plaza. Yeah, right. This right. is, you need to tell that story. And I, he, he said, I'm going to give you five years. And if you don't tell that story, I'm going to tell it. And so over the years, he would always check in whenever I'd see him. He'd say, have you written that story mm-hmm. yet? And I talked about it. And I'm usually hard on myself to say it took me so long to write it. But I had a, you know, I had a career going on. I was acting a lot and I was, you know, you concentrate on your career. And was writing a natural act for you? Not really. I mean. Not really. As we were just said before, you know, you didn't necessarily take to that like no. fish to a no. you know, fish to water. No, not at all. And I had, I also had, I still do have such respect for the written word. Oh, yeah. And the craft of it. I sort of equate it with people saying, oh, yeah, I'm a, um, a model and a dancer and an actor. Like, it's like you throw all that together like. Everybody can be an actor. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't believe that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think everybody's a writer. I don't think everybody's all of anything. So I think I had a fear of saying, oh, yes, and, I, and I'm a writer. I think that— so you needed I felt to it, cultivate that yes, in I you. Yes, fe- I felt that was dismissive mm-hmm. of the craft of writing. So I—back and forth for a little bit. And then I finally took a writing class uh, at the Y. And th- this is flash forward to, like, 2008. 
and I took a writing class at the Y. I would read my stories out loud, and my writing teacher said, oh, these are great. You should think about trying to get them published. I have some friends at the Times and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, it ended up on Jim Dwyer's desk, who does the About New York column. For the New York Times. For the New York Times. Mm -hmm. He wrote a column about my family, and the next day, my inbox and his inbox were inundated with people who wanted Holy to cow. write my story. Wow. wow. Can I can I have your permission? It's such a fantastic story. I, it would be, make a great children's book. Can I write it? I'm an illustrator. I'm a there were people calling from Hollywood who wanted to option my life rights, which sounds really scary. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that kind of jolted me Holy into action cow. in yeah. 2009. I thought if I don't, and now the story is out there. I want to own there. this, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. So anybody, and these were people who were just asking my permission. I'm sure there were people who were thinking about it who wouldn't ask my permission. So let <laughs> me get my story written. That jump-started it. And I started writing it as a children's book because that's what I saw, the little girl who lived in the mm -hmm, library. Mm -hmm. And then they tell new writers to write just keep writing. Just write whatever comes to you. So I would sit down and write. And this other story about the flip side of growing up in the library and how hard my father worked and what that must have been like for us to be there in New York in the 70s. Wasn't such a rosy picture. Exactly. Mm -hmm. That came pouring out. So clearly that was the story that wanted to be told. Mm -hmm. Then it wasn't so much a children's book. Then what was it? And I didn't know what it was. And so I put it aside again. I asked a couple of writer friends, and they said, well, why don't you get up and read it? That's what you do. You work on new plays. You're, you're, that's what your actor instrument is for. So get up and read it out loud and see if that jostles anything. And sure enough, it started opening up a lot of what the story was. I started writing it down. I started, and they said, and you also know this is a play, right? Hmm. Which, again, had never occurred to me. So then I started transcribing what I'd written into dramatic form, and that's how it ended up as a show, as a play, for as a piece of dramatic writing. So from beginning to end, how long was the process for you? So if that was 2009, uh, I finished it in 2015 at New York Theatre Workshop at Dartmouth, a mm -hmm. residency. Uh-huh. And um, I had my first production in 2016. How do you feel about it? Um, I feel like I've given birth. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like... My story has been told the way I want it to be told. I'm now open to any kind of collab. Like, I, I want to write a children's version of this. I'd like to maybe write a middle grade version of this. I think it could be a screenplay. I think it could be an animated. So I've been approached by different people, but also I can see it as other things, and I'm ready to collaborate. Now, now that I've got the story told and in the world the way I want it, now I'm open to like... So the world is your oyster when what, it comes to feeding the dragon. I think so. I Yes. But how much nudity in terms of taking your clothes off? What is it's, that like? It was horrifying, terrifying. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. I mean, the first production in Pittsburgh where I actually finished writing the play, um, it wasn't finished when Tracy Brigden at City Theater in Pittsburgh said, I love it, I want to produce it. I said, it's not finished. She said, well, if you have a production, you'll finish it. Huh. So I spent the first two weeks of that rehearsal period, four weeks of rehearsal, four weeks of performance, I spent the first two weeks trying to find the ending. I didn't have an ending, trying to finish the play. So I would rehearse as the actor, then go back and try to write new pages. Mm -hmm. It was exhausting. And everybody kept saying, it's great. You're a wonderful storyteller. We need to see more of you. It's great. That's a wonderful story. What's your point of view? Because as an actor, when I'm doing other people's stories, my point of view is irrelevant. Right. I'm becoming the character. Of course. Of I course. don't have an. I may have an opinion, but it's that's not my job. Right. In this, 
that was absolutely my job. What is your opinion about what you're saying? People are coming to see Sharon Washington in Feeding the Dragon. But what does that mean exactly? What What were you trying to impart then? So it was, if I was telling a story about my dad yes. shoveling coal, yes. how did I feel about that? Like, how did I feel? Okay, you're telling the story of the little girl and how wonderful it was and, and watching your father as St. George and the dragon and being uh, big and strong. And that's great in the moment. But then, because it's a piece of writing and it's a piece of um, people want to hear what you th now as an why are you telling me this story? That's what it is. Why are you telling me this story now in 2018? Mm -hmm. Why do I care? Mm -hmm. So I have to give you my opinion as to see, this is why I'm telling this story. I'm telling you this story. It's great. It's wonderful. But, huh, let me share with you what I'm feeling about this story in the telling of it. I have seen the play, and I don't want to talk about it too intimately mm -hmm. for people. I just encourage people to see it. But you take your clothes off in terms of the conflict mm -hmm. between your parents. Yes. I mean, it's not simply, oh, you know, wow, my dad was a custodian, and we lived in the library. I mean, this is mm -hmm. this is riveting stuff oh, and very you. personal stuff. Yeah. Was that a given to you when you were writing that? That's a great question. When I first started writing it as the little girl who lived in the library, right. it was not a given at all. I kept trying to tell that story of the fairy tale and how wonderful it was and how I would run downstairs and you know play by myself and create these worlds and what kept coming out. And I remember a really wonderful writer friend of mine who read a really early draft, and he said, this is wonderful. What's this underneath? There's something underneath this story mm -hmm. that keeps popping up. That's what's interesting. That's what I want to know more about. What's What were you thinking in that moment? What are you thinking now about what that is? And that's where all the emotion and where all of the, um, I think where I touch people on a level of whoever you are, even if you didn't grow up living in a library, looking back on your experiences as a child, what you saw and what was reality. Of course. And yes. what you experienced and what was actually going on are so different. So you didn't even know that you had the emotion. No. Mm -hmm. So no. that had to be seminal and eye-opening for you. It almost, and I say this, it, it almost killed me. I, like, I, it, I don't it, consider that an exaggeration it, it, at all. And, and a, another dear friend of mine said, well, yeah. What did you expect? Like, why would you think you could just tell this story? Knowing, because this person knew me, knowing you and knowing your story, how did you think you could sort of dance? And knowing you as an artist. Right. And how... how that you couldn't be dismissive of that. And that yeah. you had to tell the truth, what, right. what your truth right. is. Right. And that was, I was like, well, of course. No one, oh, I was, I was, I went to train. I went to Tracy at one point. And I said, I can't do this. It's I, too hard. Like, I, I literally was like in her office. I can't mm -hmm. do this. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. This was a stupid idea. Mm -hmm. I can't possibly. No, A, nobody's interested in this. And B, I don't think I can do this eight times a week. Well, that's what I was going to bring up also to do night after mm -hmm. night. And nobody's interested in watching psychodrama. Like, that's. <laughs> right. I, that's, we got that's, enough of that in real life. Yeah, <laughs> that's hello. what we got therapists yeah. for. Uh, yeah, right. We just um, have to turn on the news. Exactly. Exactly. So. The advice I also got was, what is safe for you? 
What can you share? And where do you want to draw the line? And where do you want to draw? And you have every right to draw that line. That's exactly right. Are your parents alive? No, they're not. So they never saw this? They never saw this. Um, and several people have asked me, you know, you, I do share difficult times and hard things, and how would they feel? And I absolutely, without a doubt in my mind, know they would be absolutely behind it. My father was always like, tell the truth. If you're going to tell it, tell it right. Tell the truth. <laughs> um, so... I wish they could see it because I think they would actually really love it. Mm, wow. So you're in a good place, Sharon yeah. Washington. Thank you. I, I feel like I'm in a good place. Personally, artistically, it's, it's, it's good. Do you have it's more good. stories to share, to tell? Do you think down the road? I do. I actually was named the Tao Foundation 2017-18 Playwright in Residence at Primary Stages. Well, how nice of me to have left that out. There's burying a lead. Okay. <laughs> no, that's that's... It's extraordinary to me. And what they've said, they choose, I think it's six or seven recipients of this grant every year. And it's associated with the theater and a production. And what they said for me was it they loved feeding the dragon. They were so compelled by my story. And they didn't want me to be a one-hit wonder. Huh. So they are investing in me. So for the next year, for me to continue to write right, my stories. Your stories. Yes. Yes. Uh -huh. yes. And it doesn't have to. It, it's whatever I want to write. They're invested in me as so a writer. So it doesn't have to be autobiographical. No, not at all. And it will not be, and I will not be in it. Oh, that's um, interesting. So I'm you're going, going to, to write, write for someone else. Yes, absolutely. Wow. I bet that must be such a great feeling to have added that to your your resume. I'm, you know, whoever you wouldn't, you know, maybe you never thought you'd be on Broadway or off Broadway or in the movies or mm -hmm. whatever, but I bet the bigger thing is that you never thought you'd write. Never. Not like this. Yeah, maybe not in to a this journal level. Yeah, or, yeah. you know. My, Have a journal. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. How so. great for us that you'll be behind the computer still. <laughs> Will you come back? Absolutely. Will you have me back? <laughs> Oh, please. Absolutely. I'd love to. Oh, Sharon, this was great. Thank uh, you. It, it, you're just so easy to talk to. And I can't imagine that people don't meet you and then just want to sort of stalk you, <laughs> you know, <laughs> follow oh, you around. It's a you. wonderful play. And that you, I'm going to use the word, you know, expose yourself, you know, is just it's it's just so moving. Thank and it's you. empowering for the theater goer. I certainly hope so. The feedback has been so wonderful from so many different kinds of people and people who wait for me after the show and say, you know, I couldn't be farther from being who you are. I'm I'm an older white man. Yeah. I that was my I didn't father. even have a library right. card. It, you know, yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that's the ultimate. The connecting compliment. That's is, so massive. It's it's wonderful. And especially dare I say it, especially today when we are all experiencing this feeling of talking about the other. Mm -hmm. And and mm -hmm. I'm trying to find places where we connect. And you give us hope. And I think that that's, you may not have thought about that when you were writing it, but boy, what a resonance today. Thank you. And speaking of today, thank you so much for joining me. I just had, I just, have the best time meeting all these Yay. great women. <laughs> it's pretty fantastic. I'm so glad I'm included in the number. Thank you for saying yes. <laughs> Thank you. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. But if, but I'm